When was the last time you were startled awake out of a deep sleep? I know exactly my answer. It was 12.30 a.m. on December the 7th of 2019, so about a month ago. I had gone to bed and was sound asleep and heard my wife's desperate pleading voice next to me, Bob, I need your help. She was crying. So let me start the background by telling you that when my wife creates a Christmas tree, it is a work of art. And she puts a lot of time and effort and creativity into it. And this tree has ornaments from the decades of our marriage. And so let me show you a picture of our tree with our, you know, we talk about a lot, our, a lot about our grandson. We have other children as well. So our daughter Jenny is getting married. This is Matt, her fiance. They're getting married in um, April. Well, this picture was taken several weeks later after everybody was home for Christmas, but you can just see, although this isn't the greatest of pictures, that this is a lot of effort, as I'm sure it is at your house as well, to put the tree together. So what happened that night was that after Linda got me awake, I went downstairs, and this is what I saw. Yeah, so I had a lot of empathy too, and the first thing I did was take a picture. <laughs> but then I realized that maybe she needed some help for something else as well. So it wasn't just that the, the inconvenience of a tree falling over, it was the shattered ornaments and the treasures that really were lost. In fact, folks gave us some more ornaments, and we're really grateful for those, but like they can't replace the, the treasures of all of these years, and Linda would usually put those on the front of the tree, so some of those were the ones that were damaged. So let me get back to the wake-up part of this story, because my memory of that night is that as soon as I heard Linda's voice, Bob, I need your help, I woke up and went downstairs. Linda tells the story a little bit differently that when the tree fell over downstairs, she screamed, and then she called my name, and nothing happened. She went upstairs and stood at the bedroom door and called my name, and nothing happened. And she had to get right next to me, because that's about my deepest uh, time of sleep, before I would wake up into action and realize that she needed me at that moment. There's an author by the name of N.T. Wright that has written a wonderful layman's commentary that he calls Mark for Everyone on the Gospel, where we're going to invest our time from now through April. And N.T. Wright says the opening of Mark's Gospel reads like this, and I quote, a voice breaking in on your dream world which shouts, wake up, get up, you'll be late. And without more ado, the speaker splashes your face with cold water to make the point. So I brought some water up here, and I thought I would demonstrate for the front row. So, or maybe the choir would appreciate that. So what's it like when you're really startled awake? Mark wants that response to the first 13 verses of his gospel. As we begin 2020, who here needs a wake-up call? Have you been in a dream world? spiritually, emotionally, relationally, politically, financially. To change the metaphor, have you been coasting or drifting or sleepwalking? Someone described to me recently the experience all too common for all of us at one time or another of driving down the road and realizing I was on one side of Hickory and then I got to the other side of Hickory and I have no idea how I got from one place to the other. I was on autopilot. 
And so Mark doesn't want you on autopilot when you begin his gospel. He has a very powerful message for us, and it explodes on the scene with chapter 1. Now, you're going to love Mark, I promise you, if you'll give him a chance. Did you know that for much of church history, Mark was considered the least important of the four gospels? The reason is it's the shortest, it was probably the earliest written, and therefore the other gospel writers add to Mark's story. Well, for those same reasons, for the last century or so, modern scholarship has actually said Mark is the most important of the four gospels. In my view, they're all important for different reasons, but Mark is significant because of its brevity and because of its pace and because it's the first one. So. What I want you to do is to turn to the Gospel of Mark, and you have two choices there. You can uh, use your own Bible or the one on your Bible app, or you can find the Pew Bible again to page 1,551. And in these 13 verses, I want to show you four key words that I think are part of this wake-up call as we begin the Gospel of Mark. Now, there are more important words quantitatively more words than just the four, but let me just point out the four that I think are very significant. And the first one is the very first word in the gospel. So whatever version you're looking at, uh, let me just ask you to read the, just the first word. Ready? One, two, three. The, right? So I'm sorry, that's not the one I'm talking about. All right, because the word the is actually supplied by English translations. The first word in Mark is beginning. And it's really significant that Mark begins that way. It's almost as if he just says right up front, starting up here, beginning, pay attention, this is important. Now the truth is, I don't like to argue with writers of scripture, so stay with me for a moment. Mark is not really giving us the beginning, is he? Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John picks up on that in his gospel and says, in the beginning was the word. In other words, Jesus was there at that time. Mark doesn't even start with the beginning of Jesus's life. Matthew and Luke do that, if you want that story. Mark instead says this is the beginning of what? The gospel. So that's a very critical word. And Mark is saying, I'm beginning the part of Jesus's story, of God's story, that is going to lay out for you the gospel, the good news. Now, this is another word. It's already the second word, although I've put it under the first one, but it's already the second word that really has uh, a fresh interpretation in Mark and in the New Testament, but it's not a new word. Mark is writing to a largely Roman audience. The best theory about where Mark came from is that Mark lived in Rome about the time that Peter and Paul were living there, teaching there, preaching there, and later martyred there. We know that the martyrdom was 64 AD, and so it seems that Mark wrote either before, within the few years before or after, I'm not really interested in that debate particularly, except to say that the, the, the church in Rome is feeling the kind of pressure that they haven't felt as Christians, that their lives and jobs and families are actually in danger because they believe in Jesus. So don't you think that they would want to know about the gospel? the good news that Mark is going to bring them. 
So what happens here, this word gospel was used already in a Roman context, usually for the announcement of the emperor's accession to the throne or the birth of a new heir to the throne. In other words, a herald would go out into all of the lands of the empire and say, good news, the emperor has been crowned, or good news, an heir has been born to the throne. So this idea of good news or heralding uh, is part of this word gospel. And what Mark is doing for us is he's saying, this is the beginning of that story. That's why beginning is such a powerful word. And particularly the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark will have much more to say about those terms and we will too as we go ahead, as we move through this gospel. What I want you to pick up for now is that this is the beginning and ask you as we turn the calendar over into January of 2020, does anyone here need a beginning, a fresh start? Or does anyone need a reminder of your beginning, spiritually speaking? Would it help you to go back to the beginning of the gospel? That's where Mark is going to take us. Second word I want you to notice in this text is the word wilderness. And you may not have caught, as we read through this, that this is a thread that runs through these 13 verses. So Mark quotes Isaiah about a voice of one calling in the wilderness, verse 3. In verse 4, he says that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness where the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. So he's a draw, but the Judean wilderness to that side, uh, to the west bank of the, of the Jordan River is desert, but there are small communities. People still came all the way from Jerusalem. And then a few verses later, down in verse 12, immediately after Jesus' baptism, Mark says the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness. And verse 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So Mark thinks it's important for you at the beginning of the gospel to understand that beginnings often start with wilderness. That's true of any nation on earth. The Roman Empire started by gathering people at some point out of wilderness the nation that we live in, United States of America. Originally, this was all wilderness. And certainly for the Jewish people, their story began in wilderness. Remember, as God took them out of Egypt, the first place he took them was wilderness. They spent 40 years there, but that was due to their sin. Even if it hadn't been for their disobedience, they still would have started in the wilderness before they ever got to the promised land. So John is a man of the wilderness. This weird stuff about his clothing and what he eats, locusts and wild honey, or simply how you dress and what you eat if you are a man of the wilderness. You wear very simple clothing you get from animals. There's no Steinmark to go find something a little bit more dressy. And John eats locusts and wild honey because they were available. That was protein and uh, carbohydrates that you could actually get a hold of in the desert without having sort of a farm or a garden. So he's a man of the wilderness. Jesus, who probably grew up 
poor while working with his hands, nevertheless had a relatively comfortable early life compared to John the Baptist and a steady spiritual diet in the synagogue, but he's led by the Spirit where? Into the wilderness before he's ready to launch his public ministry. There he's tested by Satan. And Mark doesn't think the details of that testing are as important as Matthew and Luke do as they tell the story in a more expanded form. All Mark wants you to know is that Jesus, when he's out there in the wilderness, has wild animals for his companions, but he's not, he's not completely alone for God sends angels to remind him of his presence with him. So again, I want to ask you, as you begin 2020, is anybody in the wilderness? Are you in a place of desperate need? Are there parts of your life where you say, I don't know what to do with this. I feel like I'm starved, I'm left alone. I feel like I'm just wandering, getting nowhere. Both in the story of the children of Israel and now in the story of John the Baptist and Jesus, we're reminded that when you're in the wilderness, you are never alone. There's someone guiding you, taking you through the wilderness to somewhere, but sometimes simply acknowledging that we are in the wilderness is a wonderful starting point for our spiritual growth. God is getting ready to break through, but he starts in the wilderness. So if you're there or you find yourself there in 2020, don't be afraid. You're not the first person to be there. Then a third word that is key to this passage is the word spirit. And once again, we have a word that feels brand new, but it really isn't. Mark is telling about the beginning of the gospel, but here's a direct connection to how God has worked in the past. So Mark's brief summary of John's message here in verses 7 and 8 says that he's pointing to the one more powerful than I whose straps of sandals, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And one wonders what those Judean crowds originally thought as they heard about the Holy Spirit. Did they have a theology that you and I have since learned to develop based on 2,000 years of church history and based on more scripture in the New Testament? Absolutely not. What were they thinking? They might have had a context, those originally Judean crowds, about some of the Old Testament characters on whom the Spirit came. People like Samson and Saul, who had a very mixed spiritual life, but for a given moment at a particular time and reason, the Spirit came on them. And they might have thought, well, is Jesus one of those? Like the Spirit's going to come and he's going to do some cool things, but we don't even know if we really trust him or not. So Mark is telling us, because he's already introduced us to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that his relationship with the Spirit is going to be very different. And so those who witness his baptism see heaven opening and the Spirit descending on him in a physical form like a dove. This is still the wonderful symbol of the Holy Spirit, even in the stained glass window behind me. And then Mark uses a word that he will use 42 times in his gospel. Mark is well known for his use of a word that's translated in the King James I grew up with straightway in most translations immediately here in verse 12 at once. So Mark is a fast-paced gospel. 11 times this word is in chapter 1 alone. Everything's happening rapidly at the beginning of the gospel. But what Mark is doing here as the Spirit then immediately leads Jesus out into the wilderness is he's introducing us to the personal and powerful and 
uh, invisible presence of God that we know as the Holy Spirit. And he's reminding us from the beginning that the way the Holy Spirit is operating in this new era is going to be different. And he's setting the foundation for what we will lear later learn that all of those who believe in Jesus, who follow Jesus, don't have to worry about the Spirit coming and going for particular occasions or situations. As the Holy Spirit comes into Jesus's life and empowers him, he comes into ours and he never leaves or abandons us. So all who repent and believe will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then there's a fourth word to which I want to call your attention, and that is the word baptism that again runs through several parts of this passage. Right at the very beginning, John is introduced as the Baptist in some translations, or perhaps the one baptizing, or John the baptizer. You'll find a lot of space given in commentaries and notes to what John's baptism was all about. Was this ritual washing as the Jews practiced in that day? Still today, if you go to Israel, there are many archaeological sites where there are called what are, what are called mikvahs, which is basically a baptismal pool, and it dates to the time of Jesus or before. So these were in use for ritual washing, and before you went to the temple to pray, or before you went to offer a sacrifice, or even in other situations, the Qumran community used it before they copied scripture, and they only had like one ritual bath where water came in every year through the monsoon and it stayed there. So let me just say bluntly, it wasn't about being clean. If you're bathing in the same water several times a day and so are dozens of others or hundreds of others for a year, it wasn't about being clean. It was about the, the nature of a sort of spiritual ritual washing that is representative of what you want God to do in your life. Or is this proselyte baptism with John, meaning that... Uh, people who wanted to convert to Judaism would undergo baptism? Or is John simply, uh, I mean, Mark simply setting, this, this, setting the stage through John's ministry of what we would know, later know as Christian baptism, where you and I participate? Well, you know, interestingly enough, look at the text. Mark doesn't have a lot of interest in clarifying all of that for us. He just notes that John's baptism, verse 5, is of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and verse 8, that this water baptism by John is a preview of the change that will fill Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Mark also tells us that Jesus became, came to be baptized by John, and he doesn't try to explain, as everyone has tried to do since then, why Jesus needed to be baptized if everybody else was coming to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because John simply wants us to focus on baptism as a beginning. So there are a number of key ideas about baptism, and honestly, they run like a thread through proselyte baptism and ritual baptism and the Christian baptism and Jesus' baptism. What they all have in common is that there is, first of all, identity, who you are. So we are baptized because we are being identified with Jesus in his baptism. We belong to him. We're part of him. It also represents humility. So for those of us who are sinners, we need to be baptized as a symbol of being cleansed for sin. Jesus didn't need that baptism, but it was still about humility for Jesus because only after he was baptized did the Spirit descend on him like a dove. And it was a symbol, again, that Jesus needs something outside of himself in order to be empowered for the ministry that is ahead of him. It's about our need or humility. And baptism is thirdly about our security. So there's a wonderful phrase here where 
heaven itself opens, the spirit descends like a dove, but there's a voice that comes from heaven and the father says to Jesus, you are my son whom I love, I am pleased with you. And Mark is setting the stage for a critical point of Christian theology that will be developed under the Apostle Paul in particular later on, that when we are identified with Christ, when we are baptized into him, when our sins are forgiven, God says to us, you are my child and I am pleased with you. So this is part of what Mark is introducing for us, that baptism is you go back to your baptism to reclaim the moment at which God said, you belong to me. Now, there are all sorts of ethical implications for that. We're supposed to live like it, right? But there's an objective statement of fact that is introduced to us here in Mark's gospel, that God also sees you, baptized, repentant, believing person. When you trust Jesus Christ, he says to you, I see you the same way. You are my beloved child, and in Christ, you are my delight. So that's the first 13 verses of Mark's gospel. We could take it a lot of different directions. Here's the message in a brief sentence. Wake up! It's time for a beginning. So from what do you need to wake up? This is also Epiphany Sunday. So I told you it's the 12th day of Christmas, but tomorrow is the Feast of Epiphany, which is the next season on the Christian calendar. And Epiphany is most closely related to uh, two events in Jesus's life. The visit of the Magi when he was a child, because that's when Gentiles came to recognize him. But let's remember that there were only a handful at most of Gentiles who honored him as the wise men did. We're going to sing a song about them at the end of the service today. But perhaps more consistently, Epiphany is related to the baptism of Jesus. The word Epiphany simply means aha. So it's like the world has been in, on the same planet with Jesus for 30 years but he was largely incognito to most people until at his baptism with, we presume, all of these throngs around, there's the Holy Spirit who descends on him like a dove and the voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved son, and the world can say, aha, this is Jesus. He's the one who makes all the difference in the world. So in this new year, as you have a beginning with this Jesus, your aha moment again with him, what would be different? Where have you been as the old year closed and as the new year comes around? And what does it mean for you to wake up? Maybe some of you have been fully committed and engaged and interested in spiritual growth, in the life of the community, in evangelism, in ministries of justice and compassion. And you don't need a fresh wake up call for today. You just need to keep on the path that you've been on. Or maybe you've been distracted or lazy or pulling back or resistant from what God wanted to do in your life. And even your being in church today is an indication that you know you need a wake-up call. Or maybe somewhere in between there, you've just been tired and confused or restless and drifting. Not one foot in the, I'm all in camp and not one foot in the resistant camp either. Maybe you're somewhere in between. Either way, Mark is telling us it's time to wake up. Spiritual pivots 
require that you not just continue to do more of what you have done before, right? So if you've written out your resolutions or goals for 2019 and they are exactly the same as 2018, you need to remember the definition of insanity. You just keep doing the same thing, hoping it'll turn out different this time, right? So don't just revisit 2018 because your goals and resolutions failed through the year. Mark's beginning of the gospel reminds us that God wants to do something new. And some of those people who came out from the Judean countryside to be baptized or came from Jerusalem were, I'm sure, devout, committed followers, seekers of God, and students of Holy Scripture and of the law. But they were right alongside a mass of people who also were in these different places that you and I might find ourselves today. So what we find as we learn here is that as God does something new, that there's a beginning, there's always a continuity to what God has done before. So one of the ways that you begin a new year is to remember and reflect on what he's done before. All of these words, beginning, gospel, wilderness, Spirit, baptism, they all have their deep roots in what God has done before, but God is doing something brand new in them through Jesus. And here's the thing about a new year. As you prepare for whatever lies ahead, you really don't know what it will be. So I can tell you a few things that are coming up for me. I've got shoulder surgery coming up. I've got a daughter's wedding coming up. I've got a trip to Israel coming up. So I can tell you some things that are going to happen in my life. At least I think they're going to happen, but I don't really know. The truth is, the life of discipleship sounds a lot like this. God has pre been preparing me for I don't know what. God has been preparing me for I don't know what. So in a sense, well, it's a good idea to do some reflection on where you think you'd like to go in 2020, a more critical spiritual discernment as we start the Gospel of Mark together is to say, Lord, I know you've been preparing me, but I don't know what, and I just want to tell you that I trust you and will follow you where you lead me as we go into this new year. So this is Mark's wake-up call. Wherever you've been, there's needs to, there is going to be something new that God is going to do in your life, and he's not probably going to explain it to you in advance. He just wants your heart at the beginning of the gospel, at the beginning of this gospel. He wants you to say to him, Lord, I don't know where I'm going, but I know who I'm going with. I will follow you. I will trust you. I will obey you as we enter into this new year. And wherever he takes you in this new year, Mark will be a wonderful guide. All we've gotten so far is the beginning of the gospel, the wake-up call. But along the way, he'll give us a lot of details about what that looks like going forward, and I hope you'll join us. Would you pray with me, please? And in a moment of quiet, would you just say that to the Lord? and tell him that you want a fresh beginning with him and that you will follow where he leads you.
God, we give you thanks for the gospel and for those who have proclaimed it, written it, preserved it, passed it down to us, and for those saints, faithful and sometimes questionable, who have been a part of the process that allows us still to sit in this place and hear again the words of your gospel. So Lord, as we prepare ourselves for this new year, as we prepare ourselves for the gospel of Mark, we just pray for those aha moments in our hearts, that there would be a fresh epiphany of trust and honor, of respect, of obedience, of love, and deep gratitude for all you have done for us in Jesus. We ask in his name, amen.